Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. Our passage last week made a distinction between two groups of people that admired Jesus. First, there were the crowds along the Sea of Galilee who clamored after Jesus because they wanted to be healed by him. They weren't there to learn from him, but to touch him. And they packed in so tightly that Jesus was concerned for his own safety. And then there were the true disciples of Jesus who enjoyed fellowship with him on the mountain. They were there to be with him and to learn from him. And among those on the mountain, a further distinction was made. Twelve of his followers were chosen to be apostles. They were commissioned to be his apprentices so that they could be sent out to preach what they had seen and heard and to exercise the authority of Jesus over demons. Our passage today makes further distinctions between the true disciples of Jesus and those who stand opposed to him. The tone matches the final words of the previous passage, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Even some of the people who were the closest to Jesus, people who should have supported him through thick and thin, didn't truly understand him. And who could have been closer to Jesus than his own family, the people he grew up with in Nazareth? And yet we see in this passage that his own family tried to hinder his ministry. These verses contain the first of nine occurrences of one of Mark's signature literary techniques, the sandwiching of one story in the middle of another. The stories are always related with the meat of the sandwich being key to interpreting the bread. The bread of the sandwich is made up of verses 20 through 21 and 31 through 35. The setting for both slices is a house, presumably Peter's house in Capernaum. In both, Jesus has a crowd gathered around him, but outside the house, his family is trying to prevent him from fulfilling his mission. Uh, The phrase that Mark uses to refer to the family of Jesus in verse 21 is ambiguous. The ESV renders it family, but literally the phrase means those of him or the ones around Jesus, which could refer to his associates, followers, friends, or family. The King James renders it his friends, but the new King James says his own people. Well, verse 31 is more specific about his mother and brothers arriving at the house. Perhaps by being vague at first, Mark intends for the reader to consider more than just the immediate family of Jesus trying to oppose him, but any one of his companions who felt as if they had a special relationship or claim to him. Certainly, they were people who felt a sense of responsibility and the urge to do something about the trouble Jesus was causing. 
Word was getting around about what Jesus was saying and doing in Capernaum. And we saw last week that he drew crowds of people from a 200-mile radius. And in this passage, he has family coming from Nazareth, an invoice coming from Jerusalem, to speak to him, to talk some sense to him. But why? Well, earlier, Mark sketched five episodes that show some of the things that they would have been concerned about. He declared a man's sin to be forgiven. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He didn't fast like other pious leaders. His disciples plucked grain on the Sabbath. And he healed a man on the Sabbath. And throughout these times, he spoke as if he was God, which would make him a blasphemer if he didn't have the authority of God. For most of his life, Jesus had not caused any of these types of problems. But now that his public ministry had begun and he was gaining a large following, he was embarrassing his family and about to get himself killed. And so they sought to take control of the situation by coming to take him away. They came to seize him, as it says in verse 21. As people saw the family of Jesus come into town, and as they recognized them, they asked them their thoughts on the matter, and their reply was that Jesus was out of his mind. They loved him enough to be concerned about him, but they thought he was crazy. They weren't about to claim responsibility for his teaching. And of course, they're not the only ones who think that Jesus is out of his mind. In come the scribes from Jerusalem who went a step further and said that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul and that his ability to cast out demons comes from none other than the prince of demons himself. So his family thinks he's crazy and the scribes think that he's an agent of Satan. The word Beelzebul is a bit tricky to translate because of its various spellings and history between the several Semitic languages and Greek. The word originally meant something like Lord of the Dwelling or Lord of the Temple or Baal's Home, since the name of the Canaanite god Baal means Lord. And the biblical writers often mock false gods, and so the Old Testament writers rendered the word to mean the Lord of Carrion or the Lord of the Flies. Some translations have perpetuated the slur by rendering it in Greek, Beelzebub, which means the Lord of the Dung Heap. But Mark is using the term which would be closer to meaning Baal's house because it fits with the parable Jesus then tells about the house of the strong man, who is Satan. Now, nowhere in Jewish literature is Satan called Beelzebul or Beelzebub, but it was common to think of the gods of the pagans as demons. And here the scribes are clearly equating Baal, the chief Canaanite god, with the prince of demons, who is none other than Satan. They're getting desperate with their accusations. But Jesus has no difficulty refuting this claim with simple logic. If he was empowered by Satan and employed by Satan, as they suggest that he is, then why would he cast out demons? It would make more sense for him to inflict people with demons. And if he were an agent of Satan, and his job was to cast out the other agents of Satan, as he was doing, then the religious leaders ought to get out of his way, because his work is undermining 
the kingdom of Satan. A house divided against itself will not stand. But that's not what's really happening. As Jesus explains, he's not working for Satan, but against Satan. He's plundering the house of Satan, robbing him blind. Remember that Beelzebul means the house of Baal. Jesus is making a play on words to describe what's happening to the house of Baal, or more accurately, the house of Satan. He has bound Satan, the strong man, and is plundering his house by casting out demons. In other words, Satan isn't dealing with a civil war. He's under attack from outside his ranks and he can't do anything about it. He's bound, his hands are tied. Jesus is mightier than the strong man. He's the one that John the Baptist preached about saying that one more powerful than he would come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the mighty one of Jacob in our Old Testament reading, who will take captives from the mighty. Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit and will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And yet, with gross misunderstanding, the scribes have accused him of being filled with demons, baptizing with an unclean spirit, doing the work of Satan. And that's the context behind a teaching that has caused great confusion and concern among Christians of the various theological questions that people ask me, one of the most common ones has to do with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Just as an example, someone wrote to me, one more quick question. What about where Jesus talks about blasphemy being unforgivable? I'm fairly certain I rebelled against God in high school and may have even flipped him the bird a time or two for whatever stupid reason I was angry for. I... I appreciated her honesty and was pleased for the opportunity to remind her of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ can't be undone by a careless word spoken out of ignorance. The context of this teaching is crucial to our understanding of what is meant by blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark rarely adds editorial comments, but he supplies one immediately following Jesus' statement. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Mark then adds his comment, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The sin in question isn't simply slandering Jesus or the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul did that and referred to himself as a blasphemer. The sin is witnessing Jesus and the work that he does in attributing his power to evil, to Satan. The scribes had seen and heard of the miracles of Jesus. They recognized and believed in his power to perform miracles, but they were convinced that he's an agent of Satan. Sometimes people think that if they could just go back in time and witness the miracles of Jesus for themselves, then they would have no trouble believing. But this passage makes it clear that seeing miracles isn't enough to produce faith and devotion. The scribes saw the miracles. They saw the demons cast out and they heard Jesus preach and they hated him for it. They believed him to be an enemy of God. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't a simple slip of the tongue. It's the belief that Jesus is motivated by evil 
rather than by good, that he's empowered by the devil rather than God. Now, plenty of people mock Jesus today, but few go so far as to claim that he was empowered by Satan to do the work of the devil. To do that requires an incredible degree of hard-heartedness. The prophet Isaiah warned against those who would do such a thing, writing, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. A person given to the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit wouldn't even think about asking for forgiveness nor would they be troubled by ascribing the work of Jesus to Satan. They adamantly believe that to be true. So any person today who is concerned about having broken this commandment can be assured that they haven't, because if they had, they wouldn't be concerned. They'd be too hard-hearted to worry about any of the teachings of Jesus, and they probably wouldn't be here this morning unless it was to cause trouble. But this passage isn't in the Bible to cause anxiety to believers. In fact, right before it, Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. And forgiveness of sins is freely available to those who come to Jesus in faith. There's no record in scripture of anyone asking forgiveness of God and being denied it. Now, the purpose of the teaching is to warn against opposing Jesus, which is what the people were doing. Not only the religious leaders, but his own family. Remember Mark's literary technique of sandwiching stories together? You know, the meat of the sandwich shows what's at stake when you oppose the work of Jesus. The bread shows that his own family was in trouble because they were attempting to oppose Jesus by seizing him. Now, casting out demons is not the work of Satan. Interfering with the mission of Jesus is the work of Satan, which is why Jesus will later rebuke Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus will not allow himself to be hindered by his biological family if they are opposed to his mission. Now, usually, Families are located in the house, but the family of Jesus was outside and calling for him. The crowds around Jesus informed him that his family was calling for him, but he, in a move that must have been absolutely shocking to their culture, dismissed their concern. How, how could he do that? The biological family was the basis of social and economic life and the source of one's identity. What could be more important than honoring your family? Well, according to Jesus, more important than honoring your biological family is honoring the family of God. Families are a wonderful gift for the preservation of the family line, its wealth and honor, for raising children in a stable environment and are ultimately for the good of society. But our highest devotion is owed not to our families, but to God, who is the head of a new divine family, a family that isn't based on blood, but on commitment to God. 
Those who do the will of God are the true brothers and sisters of Jesus. It can be hard to fully appreciate these verses in a Western context and if you've been blessed to grow up in a Christian home. But this verse and others like it offer great comfort to those who have lost their family because of their loyalty to Christ. It teaches that they haven't actually lost family, but have gained a greater family. The family of Christ is greater. It's important for us to treasure our new family. The people in this room and those unable to be gathered with us today, from the babies to the oldest among us, this is your family in Christ. These are the people to turn to in need. These are the people to serve, to love, to learn from, to count on. We were created for community and fellowship. And the Lord in his good providence has blessed us with Covenant Presbyterian Church to be a local expression of our great family. The biological family of Jesus was on the outside looking in on the new family of Jesus, but they didn't remain that way. By the time Mark wrote this gospel account, a significant change had occurred within the family of Jesus. Though nothing throughout his earthly ministry could convince his brothers and mother that he was truly the son of God, his resurrection did. After the resurrection of Jesus, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost, Jesus' brother, James, assumed leadership of the Jerusalem church, and his mother was well honored. But not because of their blood relation to Jesus, but because they did the will of God. And if you look at the first sentence of the book of James, he doesn't introduce himself by his blood relation to Jesus, but by his calling to serve Jesus. He writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if even those in the Holy Family were placed under question at one point, how much more ought we consider our faith and not just take for granted the fact that we may have been born in a Christian family or raised in the church? Do you strive to do the will of God? Do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God, not as a madman or agent of Satan, but the Messiah, empowered by the Holy Spirit? If so, then you're his brother or sister and a part of a great family and an heir to the throne of grace, and there is no condemnation for you. And you need not be troubled by the unforgivable sin because it can't be committed by accident but by willful, hateful rejection. That's the good news of the gospel. It is for you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 